Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. We've got an amazing chat for you today. We've got Dina Gashman on the show, and we're going to talk about using humor to help process grief. What a concept. And uh, Dina, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Dina wrote this book, you guys. So sorry for your loss. It is fabulous. You are going to love, love, love it. Dina, I cried. I laughed. I was touched. It's a fast read. It's just fabulous. Thank and you. I love, and I love that you have a casserole on the front. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> that was the because, idea and I, I very much approve. <laughs> well, the thing that's so funny about that is, is I live in Alabama. You live in Texas. Yeah. That's the first thing that people bring oh, for funeral yeah. food yes. is casseroles. Yeah. It's all about the casseroles it's and they're good. all good. Mm -hmm. I think they're all made with Campbell's soup. Probably. Most of them. Yeah. Don't you think? <laughs> well, it's yeah. my grandmother, her, Thanksgiving stuffings like you know it's famous to us and I remember I asked her for her recipe once and I thought it was going to be like you know go pick the sage and you know she's like get a can of cream and mushroom and can of this and I was like oh <laughs> it's Campbell's but it's delicious <laughs> I know exactly exactly how I found out about you was I read about you in Southern Living Magazine oh yeah yeah there was a really nice blurb and I thought, oh, I need to check this out. And so I got the book and I read it and I thought, oh, we need to have her on the show to discuss what all you talk about in the book and, and what your experiences have been. Yeah. So everybody, here is some information about Dina. Dina's a Pulitzer Center grantee. That's a big deal, girl. It's That's why it's at the front of my bio. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm going to ask you to tell us what that means in English here in a minute. She's an award-winning journalist and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Big deal. Texas Monthly. Big deal. Teen Vogue, Vox, and more. She's also a best-selling ghostwriter. So you could probably tell us who you wrote for, but you'd have to kill us first, kind of like a CIA thing. Some some of them are the CIA, and then some of them are very open about it, and and they don't care. <laughs> so okay. I can all right. Things. So we'll so we'll ask for some inside scoop on that. <laughs> and her most recent book is "So Sorry for Your Loss: How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns." So welcome again. I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. You lost your mom and your sister in a brief period of time and have talked in length about remaining in contact or, or remaining connected to our deceased loved ones. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you say that and what does that mean to you? Well, yeah, so I lost my mom in 2018 to colon cancer and then my sister Jackie about two years later to alcoholism. And you know, those are pretty devastating losses back to back. I'm sure anybody out there that lives with grief can sort of relate in a way. Um, but one of the things that surprised me when my mom died and then my sisters is people would say, or one of the things I learned is that your relationship with the person who's died doesn't end, right? Your relationship continues. Obviously, I'd rather have them here <laughs> and hang out with them. But I was surprised that like, I still have a relationship with them. I still talk to them all the time. Um, I still sort of tell my son about them. I have little rituals that link me to them. And and so what it means for me is just staying connected to them in, in meaningful ways that I think it helps you cope with your grief when you when you can find those things rather than letting it sort of just bog you down for the rest of your life. Do they answer you when you talk with them? I mean, I like to think so. You know, it's interesting. Like I... I do talk to them out loud all the time. Um, and it's I have a picture of my sister Jackie on my desk where I wrote the book, and I really felt like she was my writing partner. It was like a strange thing. I just felt like 
she was always very creative, but we never got to do that when she was living because it was just very difficult, um, you know, with her alcoholism. And so I felt like, okay, now we're like partners. Like I just felt this, it's hard to explain why, but I just felt like she was writing the book with me. And, and I do, I think sometimes it's like a conversation, you know, that, that they're having with me and it, and it's lovely or, or they'll pop up in a dream, you know, things like that are very helpful. That's why they, I, I learned how to be a psychic and a medical intuitive. And I teach people around the world how to do this stuff. I say, I didn't have dead, dead people chasing me as a child, or if I did, I didn't know it, <laughs> let alone what I would have done with that information. But spirit, it's been my experience that spirits will show up in a dream, Dina, because our, our brains relax a little bit mm -hmm. when we get in the bed and we go to sleep, number one. Number two, I find that our factory presetting vibrational level goes back to the level of spirit mm -hmm. because we're busy during the day and we're, we're thinking about all kinds of things and we're worried and we're stressed and we're whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's a really easy way for spirits to communicate with us when we're asleep. How you know the difference is a dream is kind of fuzzy and you remember little bits and pieces. I'll visit, however, is it's in high depth. The colors are more vibrant. The senses are more heightened, the, you know, the whatever. And you remember minute details. Mm -hmm. So I know that you've experienced both. Yes. And, and that's, I think it's really comforting when that happens. I love that you have rituals and you talk to your son yep. about his aunt and also his grandmother. What are some of those? Can you share with us some of the rituals that you do and, and how do you work with your son on this? Yeah. So he was about 13 months when my mom died. So he's not really going to, you know, his memories of her are going to be from what I tell him and I have some voicemail saved and things. And he actually never met my sister. So I try to tell him stories. Um, one of the stories that I tell him that's, it's so sweet because it, it is kind of like he's getting to know my mom. So I told him that my mom and my grandmother, who were both like Texas bells, like Southern women would say, don't ever leave the house with chip nail polish, right? Like that was what they always said. So I think one day I had chip nail polish, like it happens. <laughs> and I told Cole, my son, I said, oh, you know, CC, which is what he called my mom or what he would have called my mom. Cece and Mama would not be happy, you know, and now he brings it up. Like if he sees my nails, he'll be like, mommy, Cece wouldn't be happy. And, and it's just like a little detail that he would never know, but he sort of can know her a little bit. Or I'll just say, you know, if we're eating a certain food, I'll say, oh, Cece loved this kind of food. So I do that a lot. And then with rituals, um, I think everybody, you know, can find their own. So I don't mean a ritual is like I'm lighting a candle, which you can do. Mine with my mom is, um, and this is actually the first thing I wrote about grief was about this ritual, is that when my mom was alive, one of our things that we always did together was we watched the Hollywood red carpets. So like we would watch the Oscars red carpet. And it was, when I say I planted myself on the couch from like 1 p.m. to 11 p.m., like it, we were serious. <laughs> and my mom's commentary was hysterical. She was like a sweet Texan Joan Rivers, right? Her, I saved all her texts. They're hilarious. So either we were physically together or texting. And so when she died, it, the red carpet season came around and I really struggled with like, do I watch? Do I not? What do I do? And I wrote about the first thing I wrote about grief was that I, that I actually decided to watch. And it was such a wonderful way to connect to my mom because I could imagine what she'd be saying about the dresses. I could imagine her funny things that she would text me. And so every single year now, that's my really important ritual. My husband knows I'm like, I need the TV. I just, please leave me alone. This is like my time with my mom. And it's, and it's, you know, it can be sad. Like this year I burst into tears, but you know what? And then I stopped crying and I kept watching. So I think those things can be really, you know, meaningful to find and it, and it helps a lot. I miss Joan Rivers. What are you wearing? I know. Oh my gosh. She was hilarious. <laughs> oh, like she was hilarious. And I always wanted to see what she was wearing because yes. she was such a fashion diva. Yes. And so she, it's just not the same no. with, you know, some news anchor going, hey, what are you wearing? It's so just exciting. not Joan. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about how humor can help us get through the toughest moments. Mm -hmm. How does it help? Well, you know, one example I'll give is um, in the book, I write about my mom's hospice, her eight days of hospice. And at the time, that was certainly not funny to my dad and my sisters and I, right? It was anything but funny. It was the worst eight days of my life. But 
there were certain things that happened that we would kind of like have to laugh together. And it, and it, I think it just helped us endure. And it was kind of a release from all that really tough emotion. And, and I think that humor can be a very important kind of survival tool, not as a way to ignore your feelings, but as a way to actually process them, right. And cope with them. And so I just try, and my mom, my mom raised us that way. I say this in the book, but she raised us to always remember our sense of humor laugh at yourself. Like you're not going to crack a joke at a funeral. Obviously <laughs> this isn't something you can force, but just remembering the levity in life, I think can help. Um, and it's hard in the early days of grief. Like it's, you know, there's not a lot of laughter going on, but I think as you move through life, it certainly helps. And it helps me while writing the book to have levity. Absolutely. And, and I put it in the book because I feel like it just, it hopefully helps the, the reading of the book to have those moments when you're sort of unexpectedly laughing, you know, after something sad. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the whole point of wakes and funerals mm -hmm. is to get people together. Oftentimes, especially in this day and age, when people don't live in the same town and they're spread out all over and they come together and you have your tears shed and the remembrances and then there's a luncheon or a dinner or some kind of a get together. It, it can be at somebody's house or a restaurant or, or whatever works for the family, but it's so healing yeah. and comforting. It is. And that brings us to funeral food. <laughs> What's the deal with funeral food? Now I got to read this excerpt from your book. I was laughing so hard with this. I had tears coming down my face. So you guys, this gives you an idea of how fabulous Dina's book is. And she says in the book, you know, you know exactly where I am. Page 215. Foods that help temporarily alleviate symptoms of grief include buttery mashed potatoes, enchilada casserole, homemade chicken soup, buttery biscuits, chicken pot pie, large hunks of pound cake, ramen noodles, chicken and dumplings, and gumbo. You can tell you're in Texas with the gumbo. Texas or Louisiana, right? And she goes on to say, you can also bring any of these dishes to bereave friends, families, or neighbor friends, family, or neighbors. Do not bring depressing foods like Melba toast, steamed broccoli, or blanched green beans with zero seasoning. Grief requires butter, salt, flavor, and a whole lot of love. I just thought that was priceless. So what is the deal with funeral food? I think every culture probably has it. Yes. And and what? how do you think it comforts us other than, you know, we're emotionally eating at that time, but... I think, you know, I thought about this because there's a whole chapter dedicated to the, the food aspect of grief, right? Because when my mom died, I mean, my dad's freezer was just overflowing. It was, you know, everyone came out. Um, and I think, you know, when I thought about it for the book, yes, besides the fact that we're eating our feelings in a way, um, it's it, it, good food is the opposite of, of death and grief, right? It's exciting and it's happy and it's joyful and it's flavorful and it's the opposite of all the other stuff you're going through. And it's a, it's a show of love, right? I mean, the gumbo, um, my sister's sister-in-law made us the gumbo and it was like, it was so sweet. And, and especially when I saw the recipe and how hard it was for her to do, you don't have to do that. I mean, you can bring ready-made casserole and it's just as sweet, but like, it's just a show of love. Um, I think to bring something that's su sustaining, right? It's a, it's a show of life is going to go on you're going to eat, you're going to continue, right? You're not going to sit there in a corner and deprive yourself. So I think it's that. Um, and yeah, it's just a show of, of, you know, we're going to help you move forward in life. I, when I first moved to LA in my early 20s, this older couple adopted me. They lived in my condo building and they were Jewish. Well, you know, I'm a good Catholic girl. I've never been to a Jewish funeral, but I went to several with them, their family members and others, and they would sit Shiva. Yep. So I learned about that, which is kind of like a grieving process. And they always brought sweets. Mm -hmm. They always brought some kind of desserts. And I am a recovering sugar addict. So it was nirvana for me. I was like, don't you have any funerals I need to go to with you? Because, I need to you know, can we go, can I go sit Shiva with you where they got this dessert table that's 50 feet long with yeah. stuff people have brought? 
And they'd say, no, nobody's died, but we'll let you know when they do. <laughs> yeah, probably the first person that's wanted to go sit Shiva. <laughs> I know, exactly, because it was my kind of food. <laughs> Funny story about food that comes to my mind. My late brother-in-law, when my sister died, people brought him a bunch of food. And I am the Ziploc queen, Ziploc bag queen of the universe. Everything goes in a Ziploc bag and it gets frozen. Yeah. You know, if we're not eating it right away. So I was cutting lasagna up into pieces and putting it flat in a Ziploc bag and I put it in the freezer. And my brother-in-law gave me a hard time. He said, I can't even eat this now. How am I supposed to eat this? I said, it's cut in pieces. He goes, it's just a glob. I said, you'll be fine. Yeah. Just, and he yeah. was getting upset because I was messing up his funeral food. <laughs> it was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. You say that that when we are talking with someone who's lost a loved one, that really saying anything is better than saying nothing at all. And I find that most of us are uncomfortable with what to say yeah. when there's a death in the family or or a a friend or a loved one. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your experience with that and what have you learned from going through those funerals for your mom and your sister? Well, I think that's very true. You know, I, I want the book to be for people who live with loss, but also for people who do feel uncomfortable, right? Maybe you have a partner or a best friend or a coworker who has deep loss and you just don't know what to say. I, I hope the book speaks to those people too, because I didn't know what to say before losing my mom. I had lost grandparents who I adore, but a loss like my mom or sister is a whole different ball game. Um, no offense to my grandparents who I love. Uh, so I was, I did not know how to talk about grief. And I think so many people are very nervous in the face of grief, right? The emotions are big. Death is scary. We don't want to upset the grieving person when when you're on the other side of it you realize like you're already upset like you're not really going to trigger a grieving person by saying you know that's such a tragedy but um you know i had a really good friend in college that when i was getting to know her it came out that her you know or came up that her brother had died when they were younger and i just i remember being totally tongue-tied like i didn't know what to say so the reason the book's called so sorry for your loss is because that's kind of the thing right you say so sorry for your loss condolences and when my mom died, so sorry for your loss, made me very angry for a while. And it just, it felt very um, like a canned response. It felt very un unemotional. Like it didn't reflect the depth of our emotions. And it, I just felt like, oh, it's such an easy thing. Why are people saying that? And then I came to understand that, you know, people are trying. And it and it's just, it's a thing to say that's kind of safe, right? So I think it's okay. And, and I had somebody in my life that never said a word so that's definitely the worst. So say so sorry for your loss all day rather than saying nothing. But I think it can be comforting to people. What I appreciate when people say, my heart is broken for you, you know, something that reflects the pain. And, you know, one person said, oh my gosh, this is so tragic. My heart's broken. And I was like, that's, I appreciate that because it is. And I know it is. You're not telling me something I don't understand. And another really sweet thing to say if you don't know the person and it comes up is just ask the name of the person who died is, is one of the sweetest things you can do. It's just when somebody says like, what was your sister's name? I'm like, that's incredible because it's just, it's very meaningful. So I think, you know, saying things like they're in a better place, are not the most helpful or, you know, um, they're not suffering anymore because it may be true, but it's not, you'd probably rather have the person here. So, you know, I just think people don't know what to say. And so it's, it's, I want people to understand that like if you're saying anything, it's probably better than nothing. Mm -hmm. What I do like you when I don't know the person and I'm at a, I'm speaking at a conference. Mm -hmm. I, I work with a lot of families who have a loved one who's either dying or has passed. Sure, and yeah. so I speak at those a lot and, and I will say, tell me about your daughter. Tell me about your mom. Yeah. That's really, you know, and they'll say, and, and they'll talk yeah, and they'll, and they, and they just appreciate that somebody cares and they have the opportunity to, to really share all the wonderful things yes. about their late loved one. Yeah. It's definitely one of the best things you can do is to then ask the name or ask what they were like. It's, it's yeah. really sweet. And, you know, a lot of people feel very isolated in grief, especially parents who've lost children. I, I talked to a lot of parents for the book. And they just feel like people kind of freeze up around them and, they, and they're scared to say anything. Therefore, they just don't talk or, you know, they just, they feel really alone 
when a lot of times they do want to talk about the child or, you know, not everybody, but I think just opening that up, you know, is, is really helpful for somebody. Especially when they die by suicide. Yes. I have had a gal named Leanne Hall, whose son died by suicide. And she taught me to say, not committed suicide. She said it makes it sound like it's crime. And it used to be in a lot of places. And somebody say to me one time, if it's a crime and the person's already dead, what's the police going to do yeah. to them? Yeah. And I thought, I good point. Thought that way, but that's- I haven't thought about it that way either, but I thought, that's, that's a good point. But but what Leanne said, and, and for those of you that are watching and listening, if you're interested, go listen to the Leanne interview. Leanne Hall was her name and, or is her name. And she talks about that she... When she talks about her son who died by suicide, she says, when people say, how many kids do you have? She says, I have four kids, three alive, one's in heaven, and he died by suicide. His name was Andy, and he was a great kid. Can I tell you about him? She said she hit it head on so that it wasn't awkward, and it put people at ease. And she said, if people knew that he died by suicide, she would bring it up early in the conversation. And I think that's applicable too, not just for suicide, but for something that maybe somebody dies in in a horrific way or something that's not just an illness, but maybe they die in a car accident or they, they die in a crime scene or something along those lines. I think hitting it head on, she says, makes her feel better because she's in control. And it it puts the person with whom she's talking at ease as well. Have you experienced anything like that? Yes, that makes a lot. That's why I'm nodding so so vigorously. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, You know, I have, and and one of the moms I talked to who her son had died several years ago, she said a similar thing where when people say, how many children do you have? to hesitate. And she said, I don't hesitate anymore. She, she does the same thing. She says, I have, you know, my daughter and then my son, Mac, who died. And she just, she go, she says that to the person so that it's not this secret and, and, you know, it, it helps her. And I experienced, I really appreciated that because with my sister, so I come from a family of, you know, four girls. So my parents had four daughters and it was always the thing of like the Gashman girls, there's four of you. I can't believe it. Your poor dad, you know, that it was just like our identity, right? It was a house full of women. And so when my sister Jackie died, I really struggled with the question, how many siblings do you have? Like I would trip over my words. I would stutter. I had no idea how to answer people because I was scared of being that like retro- record scratch at the party, you know, to be like, yeah, my sister died. You know, I mean, just it's it, it can come out awkward at the wrong time. So when I talked to that mom and I, and I agree with what your previous guest was saying is, is now it kind of gives me permission to say, I have three sisters. And if I want to say, and one died in that moment, I can, or I can just say, you know, I come from a family of four girls and it's up to me if I want to open the conversation, but it helps me not hesitate um, anymore. But, but I think that is helpful, especially for parents, you know, just to say like, you know, this was my son's name to make it not there's almost like a stigma or something with a loss that's that's scary for people. Um, and and that's really hard for anyone to, to endure beyond their own grief, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And I think that most people, when they're losing a loved one or they've lost a loved one, not only are they grieving for that loved one who's passed, but it also makes all of us face our own mortality. Yes, absolutely. And so it's a matter of, ugh, I'm gonna be there yeah. at some point. Yeah. And I and I always quote our our my favorite priest who's our pastor who says, Well, people are worried, you know, are they gonna fly or are they gonna fry when they pass? <laughs> he said that from the altar at a sermon, which I love, Father Fallon. I just I, I told him after that mass, I said, I'm gonna poach that. I'm gonna use that because <laughs> that's epic. <laughs> he said, Yeah, you're welcome to use it too. Thank you very much. Are you gonna fly or fry when you die? <laughs> oh my gosh. Why do you think the human connection in times of sorrow is so important? You talk about that a lot in the book as well. Yes. I mean it really one of the chapters is about collective grief and sort of and I think coming through the pandemic, we all have experienced this sense of sort of 
whether you're across the you know country from someone or across the world from someone, there was this sense of like, we need to be together. We need to like comfort one another. Um, and I just think it's, it's too hard to do it alone. I don't, I don't know how you would hold all the feelings of grief alone. Right. And to me, I feel thankful that, you know, I have, you know, my two sisters, I have my dad, we talk all the time and it helps us, you know, not hide from our emotions, but it helps us just process. I can call them at any time and just say, you know, I had this dream or today's kind of hard. And it just, it's very helpful. And my dad thankfully got immediately into a grief group um, when my mom died and he's still in the grief group. <laughs> and it really gives him a sense of like the, a purpose, I guess. He likes to help other people. You know, he likes to, he just loves that kind of bonding that they all have together. Um, and so I think it can be really important to not feel like you're the only one or um, that you're alone in this because being alone in it, I think is, is, I don't know how you would endure it. Well, and you also talk about the collective community in grief of people that we don't even personally know. Yeah. And the funeral of Princess Diana comes to mind yeah. Yeah. where, oh my gosh, people were openly weeping during her funeral and the days leading up to her funeral. And it was such a dichotomy, I thought, when I was watching on a TV, I'm bawling, you know, up across the ocean. I never met the woman, but we all felt like we knew her. And at the same time, we're watching the royal family who is stoic and not an emotion is being shared, not a tear is being shed. And they're walking down the street and there are all these people that are just wailing yeah. on either side of the street. First of all, I can't imagine how that was, especially for the boys. Yeah. Prince Harry especially talks about that and saying, why are these people so upset? They didn't even know her. Yeah. So talk about that. When we grieve, like with Princess Diana, the globe was grieving when she passed. What's that all about? I mean, I think, you know, it can happen with so many different celebrities. Like I write about Prince because for me that was, you know, and I think for so many people, Prince, losing Prince was really startling and sad and Princess Diana, absolutely. And um, I think we, you know, with some of these really beloved celebrities, like the actor Chadwick Boseman, I feel like, or Kobe Bryant, like there were similar kind of like vigils and people were just sad. They didn't even know him. And I, I think some of these celebrities, we sort of project things onto them. Like Princess Diana, we just project, projected that she was like this amazing person and a loving mom and that she was wronged or whatever it is. And, and, and it's part of our culture, right? We, we talk about these people. We maybe, if they are musician, we listen to their music and it, it is, it can be a sense of loss. And I think some people find that silly, but it's, you know, I mean, the Eiffel Tower was lit up in purple for Prince. Like People were upset. And so I think it's, you know, it's when you live with these people on the news and on TV, it almost feels like they're just part of the fabric of your life in a way, even if you don't know them, they're just part of, they're in magazines and they're just, you're so used to their presence. Um, not literally, but it's, it's kind of startling when they're gone all of a sudden and you, and you feel it in a way. Well, and I think it helps people as a community when they're grieving as well. And what Princess Diana's been dead for 25 years, maybe longer. Yeah. And they're still making documentaries about her. There's still books being written. Yeah. There was a statue unveiled recently. And and a lot of times, even the tabloids, when you're checking out at the grocery store, they still got Princess Diana stories yeah. on it. And I find that it's it's almost something that's insatiable mm -hmm. that the media and the entertainment industry perhaps I don't think perhaps, I think they do recognize. Mm -hmm. And it's it's something that they're tapping into. And it does help soothe the wound of loss mm -hmm. yeah. when we can read or watch a movie or something about somebody that we admired mm -hmm. who was a celebrity. And do you think that that helps us with our own grief too? Here's where my question comes from. When... Who was it? I want to say it was Lon um, when Burt Reynolds died mm -hmm. and Lonnie Anderson, his wife, I heard her in an interview say that she didn't cry, didn't cry, didn't cry, didn't cry. And then one day when she had a minute, she watched really sad movies. Mm -hmm. And she said it was like it released this waterfall of tears mm -hmm. that were 
for Bert mm-hmm. that she had yeah. penned up in her body and she just needed some kind of a catalyst to turn on the valves so that the tears could be shed. And I and I wonder sometimes if that's part of the equation too when we're grieving for somebody who's a celebrity. I would think so. I mean, I would think, you know, any, I think for me, when I, once grief kind of came into my life, I, you know, I sort of gravitate towards people's stories, not as a way to be like, oh, tell me more, but it's a way of like connection, right? It's a connection. So Ashley Judd, for example, like I felt so horrible for her and her sister. And like that story isn't, you know, it's, there's issues with it, with it, not just being their story. Right. I mean, it's their family, it's very private, but they're public people. So I think when that happened, it's, you know, you just, it, it does, it brought up stuff about my mom. And even though the circumstances were different and I'm sure for other people, it brought up things about people they love. And so, you know, when you see that happening, you know, I think, I think you can sort of let your feelings come out in a way, maybe even in a way that you repressed before that it's, it's a little bit safer or something to cry over, you know, prints or a movie. Yeah. Gone with the wind. Yeah. Tomorrow's another day. Mine, yeah, right. Terms of endearment. I, that's a, that's what terms of, about. Oh, a very oh. Tough one for me. Terms <laughs> of endearment, please. I remember what going to the theater to watch that movie and I was on a date oh, wow. and I remember holding my breath yeah. in that movie because I was so afraid that if I breathed, I would go, <gasps> You know, and the whole theater would hear it, let alone this guy yes. that I had had gone out with. I, it was probably our first and second day, and I thought, what a movie to pick. Yeah, that's a right. lot for a date. Most of us have busy lives, and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one. It's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones and I find that they're really helpful. They save me time, they're easy to take, and I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com and use Julie Ryan at checkout and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. How do we know something is a sign? That's a good question. From a loved one. Yes. I think, you know, I think one thing I love, so I talked to different people for the book, but two people that I talked to said this in it, said the same thing in kind of different ways, but their thought was if, if, it feels real to you, or if you believe it's true, then it's true, right? In the wake of grief. And so I think if it feels like a sign to you, then it's a sign, right? So, so many, I mean, this is kind of across the board with, with death and, and missing somebody is you look for those signs, right? So my sister, my youngest sister, um, all of a sudden after, you know, maybe a couple of months after my mom died, started sending pictures of butterflies all the time to us and being like, it's mom. And so we sort of laughed because it was, it was, there were a lot of butterflies that she sent, but that was her way of saying like, okay, mom's here. And now sometimes when I see a butterfly, I'm like, maybe, maybe that's her. I don't know if I believe it is. And other people, maybe snowfall is their sign. And I, th- I just think if it, if it feels that way to you, if you just feel that, okay, I think that this is their presence, then that, then it's true. You know, I don't think it's a scientific thing that you can prove or disprove. It's just, um, you know, something feels like the presence of your person, then then I would believe it. Why would you not? Well, I talk to deceased loved ones with clients all the time and they give these signs. You'll appreciate this being a Texan. I was talking with a woman oh, a couple of days ago and, and her deceased husband mm-hmm. who had passed maybe a couple of months ago. And she said, what, is there a sign that he can send me? And I said, yeah, Bluebell. She goes, Bluebell ice cream? 
<laughs> I said, oh, you are such a, such a Texan because yeah. Bluebell ice cream is a big thing in Texas, but it's not most places. Yes. And I said, no, he's showing me Bluebell flowers, which are also a big thing in Texas. And I said, but... But you know, bluebell ice cream—that's that's pretty close. You can you can do that too. Yeah. And I think the the thing is, to your point, it's that first thing that comes into our heads, mm-hmm. and and then we second guess it. We think, oh, that's just our imagination. No, it's not. Yeah. That's communication yeah. coming in. Yeah. And then when things that are so random happen. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can deny it. You don't need scientific proof. You can use your common sense. This happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was flying to LA, my husband and I, and we were in the Atlanta airport and there had been a storm. And so they shut down the airport. And so Atlanta is the busiest airport in the world. So planes were backed up till kingdom come. You know, I think we were 20th in line to take off. So I was texting my son in LA and we were meeting him and I said, we need some heavenly heavenly help from Uncle Regis, my brother-in-law who got mad at me about the lasagna and the Ziploc bag. <laughs> I said, we need some heavenly help from Uncle Regis to cut in line. He was a famous line cutter. <laughs> he would cut in line, you know, ahead of a big line and not even think twice about it. And we need some ser- some help from Uncle Regis so that we can get going and not be here for three hours waiting to take off. At that moment, as soon as I sent that text, Tina, I got a text from my brother in Chicago and our family sign yours is butterflies for your mom. For my late sister, it's rainbows. Mm -hmm. So my brother, John, sends me a text from Chicago. He says, we're out to dinner, we're in the parking lot and there's a rainbow right in front of us, sent a picture of it. I look out the window in Atlanta on the tarmac and there's a rainbow in the sky in Atlanta at the identical time. That's amazing. What's the chance of that? Yeah. Zero, number one. And number two, immediately thereafter, the pilot comes on the the speaker system and he says, okay, we're going to move to another runway so we can get out of here faster. They move us to the other side of the airport and we're airborne within five minutes. That's amazing. So I got answered, my prayers answered from Uncle Regis in heaven. And his wife, my sister Joan, is sending rainbows in Chicago and Atlanta at the same time. So, you know, you look at that and you think, is that a coincidence? Yeah. You'd have to convince me that was a coincidence. Yeah. No, I believe because, that. Yeah. You just can't make that stuff up. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways that we know, mm-hmm. too that, okay, this just is, this is not random. Yeah. And this is something that our loved ones letting us know that they're around us. Yeah. And all the time. And it's so beautiful. And it's just so helpful when that happens. I actually had a, like going back to dreams. I had a dream a couple weeks ago that my mom and my sister were sitting at like a cafe table together, just like casual talking. And I love, I cherish that dream because I feel like they were like, I feel like it felt very like, peaceful and like they were just so calm together and um just the fact that they were sitting there and it wasn't like I wasn't in the conversation but they kind of looked at me and so I just I probably will carry that with me forever I think because it you know they were together like this is the first dream I had that they were you know in the same space so I don't know maybe they are <laughs> I like to oh, think of course they are yeah of course they are and I have goosebumps with you telling that story so that was a visit girl that wasn't just a dream that was a visit because yeah. you remember it and you remember it in detail I remember it very well and it, I remember the feeling of it just was so it was just a wonderful like warm feeling it was so I was right. so happy right I think that ancient cultures have signs too and they have since the beginning of time I think astrology has a lot to do with that. Yeah. And and just the symbolism and the signs that our loved ones can send us. When I'm doing a energetic healing with somebody, I see metaphors and analogies for the healing that's occurring. And sometimes they're hilarious. Like I may tell you your elbow looks like a bowl of whipped cream or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. But it but what I've found is that it helps integrate the healing into the body because we're bypassing the conscious mind mm-hmm. and we're going right into the subconscious, which helps 
the body integrate the healing. And I believe that these signs are intended to do the same thing. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, they're sort of going straight to, you know, like you said, kind of past the conscious mind and just, you know, existing. So I think that, I think that feels true to me. Yeah. Well, the conscious mind, that's where we can debate with ourselves. Right. Oh, that's just my imagination or whatever. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying before, but you know, when you're sleeping, you're relaxed. And during the day, you know, we have the internet and we have this and we have appointments. Like we're just, you're not going to be very open to that kind of thing. Exactly. Tell us about Mrs. Boudreaux. <laughs> Good. Mrs. Boudreaux. So my middle school teacher, her name, I changed her name for the book, but her name was pretty similar to that. Um, and I actually searched for her. I wanted to interview her so badly for the book and I could not find her. But Miss Boudreaux was a middle school art teacher. And I started, there's a chapter about signs and symbols. I started the chapter with her because when we were in middle school, there was a rumor. She wore butterflies everywhere. She wore butterfly hair clips. Butter, I think she wore moo-moos from in my memory. Butterfly clothes, butterfly jewelry. And the rumor was that her husband had died and she thought he was reincarnated into a butterfly. And then she also wore bracelets up each arm. And that rumor for that was that she was afraid if she took a bracelet off, someone else would die. I don't know if these are true. These could have been junior high things, but she did wear butterflies every day. So back then we thought she's, she's kooky, she's crazy, you know, all these things that you, that you don't understand. And then I thought about her, you know, when, when I was writing the book, cause I was like, well, now I kind of understand her. <laughs> now I can sympathize with her. If she did think that about her late husband, like, you know, then you do you, Miss Boudreaux. Like, and I so wanted to ask her about it, but I just couldn't find her. But I just, you know, it's one of those things where I couldn't understand it at the time. All the, you know, I was also in middle school and who knows, but later in life, when you, when you have a, an experience that helps you empathize with somebody else, you know, I think that's one thing grief can do. It really, I think it can deepen your layers of empathy. And so that's what Miss what I think about now when I think of Miss Boudreaux, I'm like, oh, she was living with grief. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it comforted her, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. For her to wear butterflies every day, yeah. Yeah. there was some hidden meaning there. Yeah. Serious hidden meaning. Yeah. That's a riot. <laughs> Why are people reluctant to ask for help? Did you find yourself allowing people to comfort you and help you when your mom died? You know... I did, but I also had a sense of like, cause I had a 13 month old, I had a job. So I, you know, of course, friends and my, my sisters and, you know, I, I'm, I don't block people out in that way, but I did have this notion of like, okay, I can handle this. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to get back to life. I'm going to be a mom. And it was about eight months after my mom died that I realized like, I think I need therapy. I like, I need help. Right. I cannot do this on my own. And so I think I did try to shoulder a lot and just kind of like muscle on. And I think people feel like that's what you're supposed to do, right? I think hopefully the the conversation around grief is changing, that we understand that it's not something you get over. It's not something that goes away one day, right? Or that you just, you know, persevere and everything's going to be fine. Like it, you live with it day to day. It obviously hopefully becomes manageable and, and you have more joy than anything else. But I think people do have that, you know, like stiff upper lip, like get back to work sort of attitude. And, and you almost feel like weak if you're, you know, eight months out or two years out and still sad when that's natural, like it's human, right? I mean, it shouldn't be debilitating, but I think people maybe are afraid to ask for help. They're afraid it shows weakness or something. I agree. And I don't think there's any set time or way to grieve. No. I think it's all very personal. Yes. And it may be 10 years down the road when I'm getting out all of the Christmas decorations yeah. and I have so many memories. So my mom gave me this, my grandmother gave me that, my sis this is my sisters, whatever. Yeah. And it and it I don't cry at this point. I may get a little teary because it's been a long time. It's been 20 years. But it still elicits an emotion. Yes. And I love having that stuff mm -hmm. because it takes me back to the memories yes. that were joyful. Yeah. And it, I, oh, go ahead. I, I describe grief to people, too, who are grieving as waves of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And when you're at the beach, you think of calm, disruption, repair. Yeah. The water's calm. 
you have the disruption in the wave. It comes, it hits the shore with a lot of force. It's, if you're in the middle of it and it's high tide and there's a storm, you know, you get knocked over, you can get hurt. So it hurts a lot in some instances. And then it always recedes and then you go back to calm. Mm-hmm. And really everything in nature is like that. You think of the seasons, you know, you got calm, disruption, repair. You got the calm in the, in the summer, you got disruption in the fall and the winter, and then you have repair in the spring and everything comes back. Yeah. So I find it helpful when I'm grieving to just picture waves of the ocean. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's, I find that it's soothing and it makes sense to people when I describe it. Yes. It, it very much feels that way. And when I was talking about, you know, watching the red carpets this, this past winter, when I watched, I think the year before I didn't cry, I always think of my mom, but, and I'm always a little melancholy, but this year when I was watching like out of the blue, I don't know what triggered it. It wasn't anything specific, but I just had one of those, like, like an ugly cry. Like I just all of a sudden on the couch, just bawled. And it lasted probably 30 seconds, but it was like those grief cries are, they can like wear you out. (laughs) They're so intense, but it was about 30 seconds. So that was probably the ocean, like hitting me in the face. And and my husband was super worried about me and and I, and I calmed down and I was like, okay, I'm good now. I'm going to continue watching. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to have fun. Think about my mom. But it was that wave of like, here it is. And you don't know when it's going to come, right? You, you have no idea, but I think you have to let it in. I think that's kind of one of the things I've learned is that you, you, you have to let it in when it comes because it's not going to last forever. It may last for 30 seconds. And the, and to me, I, it's always remind, it reminds me like, okay, those few feelings are in there somewhere. Like those emotions are in me because they just popped out, you know, and you let them out and then you can continue on with your day. And so that, you know, that definitely feels true that, you know, hopefully the, the strength of the waves calms down over time, but you it know, does. it does feel like that. It does. It does. For me too, when my Mima died, I was very, very close to her. And that was by far the most intense mm-hmm. because that was the first one that I really was close to that I'd lost. Not that I loved others less, yeah. but I found that once I went through it once mm-hmm. or the first time that I kind of knew what to expect yeah. and it wasn't as devastating. Yeah. This, the times after that when my dad passed and my sister and my brother-in-law, certainly it was heart-wrenching, yeah. but I found that I got over it faster mm-hmm. because I learned what worked for me as far as the grieving process. And I think that's something to look forward to, not that your loved ones are going to die. I mean, we know they're going to die, but but to know, okay, when I face this in the future, I'm going to have the tools mm-hmm to help me deal with it perhaps a little bit easier because I've been through this, this really heart-wrenching experience the first round. Did you find that with your sister when she died after your mom? I think a little bit. I think, you know, like you said, it's still heart-wrenching and horrible. And like, you know, it's not like, oh, this is a breeze. But with my mom, it was so devastating. It was so like physical, emotional, psychological. It was everything. It was just, and it, I think it took me about two years. I mean, I went, you know, I had my son, you know, I had a lot of joy in my life for that time, but I feel like it took about two years before I was like, okay, I think, I think I can do, I can live with this. And with, and then when my sister died, you know, two years later, right. When we were all starting to feel like maybe we're going to be okay. I, the, there was an overwhelming feeling when my sister died of like, I can't believe we have to do this again because, because I knew, I knew what we were about to go through. And I just kept thinking like, I can't, I cannot believe how are we going to do this again? But it was, it, it was weird to me because the initial days and weeks were very devastating, but I more quickly kind of got back to life, which then of course worried me. Cause I'm like, am I a horrible person? Like, <laughs> why do I yeah. feel kind of okay? Um, but it, it felt like I could kind of get back into the swing of life a little bit more quickly. Not that I didn't miss her and was devastated, but um, I think that just, you know, it it didn't take two years to sort of let it settle around me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And my mom died six months after my Mima, her mother. Oh, that's so hard. And and what I thought too, because I know what happens when somebody's dying, it's the maternal spirit that's there that runs the show from the spirit world, brings in the angels, brings in the deceased loved ones and others. I thought, okay, Mima need to, needed to die first to help my mom. Mm-hmm. 
mm. when my mom was dying. Mm. And that's the first time that I saw the configuration of angels and deceased loved ones when my mom was dying. Interestingly enough too, Dina, my Mima, I was her favorite. I'm named for her. <laughs> my siblings will tell you I was her favorite. My cousins will tell you I was her favorite. I will tell you I was her favorite. <laughs> When her spirit was in the room and she was running the show when my mom was dying mm-hmm. with the angels and the deceased loved ones and all that, she didn't pay any more attention to me than she didn't even look at me. She yeah. was not, and she loved her grandkids yeah. and her great grandkids. She was laser focused mm-hmm. on my mom, on taking care of what what needed to be handled. It was fascinating Mm -hmm. to see that. And that I think helped me too with processing them so close together Yeah, because I knew my Mima needed to go first so that she could help my mom. Yeah. And I think that's something for us to remember too, when we go through something that, that your mom needed to go first to help your sister. Yes. Well, and I also think, I don't know how my mom would have lived through losing my sister. I, I, I don't know that wouldn't have been good. Like my dad's not great, (laughs) but he's okay. Right. He goes out to dinner and all that kind of stuff. And I think about this a lot. I don't know if my mom would have survived losing my sister. I just don't. And so I almost think like, yes, she probably had to go before Jackie because I just think that would have been too much for her, honestly. Well, and she went so she could help Jackie transition. Yeah. Cause she was running the show from the spirit world. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it would be the person's guardian angel, the dying person's guardian angel, or like a like extra uh, secret service or something from heaven or something. It's the mama that's yep. running it, and if the mom's still alive, it's the closest spirit on the maternal line. Okay. So if your maternal grandmother's still alive, it's her mother. Okay. You know, it just goes up the chain of the maternal thing. Speaking about your sister, you talk about mourning the loss of your sister before she actually passed. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. So I think, you know, anybody listening who who loves somebody who, ha- you know, suffers from alcoholism or substance abuse issues may understand this is that when they're, you know, my sister suffered for years. And so I didn't realize this until I was writing the book and researching, but I was grieving her when she was alive. I just didn't understand it. I just knew I was, had anxiety and I was mad and I was sad and like my emotions were totally confusing around her and it was just, it was really tough. And then when I was um, writing the book, somebody I interviewed told me about ambiguous loss, which is when grief is not triggered by a death, it's triggered by a change in the relationship. So this can be from somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's. It can be from substance abuse. It can be with estrangement. Um, so it can, you know, it, and that, that really made sense for me. Cause I was like, Oh, all those years, those really tough feelings were a form of grief. And, you know, it's hard when somebody is an alcoholic because you're, you're always dreading the call, right? I mean, for years I would dread the call and then we, we actually got the call, but I would almost like imagine getting the call. It's almost like a way to prepare yourself psychologically, which is, you know, it's such a morbid thing, but I think it's pretty common. So it was helpful for me to learn about ambiguous loss and and understand. It sort of made, it sort of like almost put the puzzle pieces to, of my feelings together all those years. Um, and, I, and I just think I interviewed the woman who came up with the term. Her name's Pauline Boss. I think she's 80 now. But um, she said that when she came up with it, it was in the 70s. And she just said it helps people put a name. It, like if you put a name to something, it helps people cope with their feelings. And I definitely felt that with my sister. Well, I think when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis or some terminal illness diagnosis, I think it's hard not to go there. Yes, yeah. For the person themselves, but also for their loved ones. Yes. And I really appreciated when I was reading your book about you pointing that out and discussing it because I I don't think it's something that most people are aware of. And and it is... Definitely changes our, it can change our interaction with somebody. And those are such priceless moments that we have at the end of somebody's life if they're sick. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly, if somebody dies in 
instantly in a homicide or suicide or car accident or something like that. We don't have that option. But I think it's important for us to be cognizant of it so that we can enjoy Mm -hmm. the time that's remaining with that person while they're still alive. Certainly the relationship continues, but it's different. Yes. We all know that. And when you talk about detach with love, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? That was something that I learned. Um, I went to an Al-Anon meeting. My sister and I, we didn't live in the same city for a long time, but then we both lived in New York at the same time. And that's when her alcoholism really was very apparent. Like the severity was very apparent to me. And I was not good. I mean, she would flake on lunches and dinners and she wouldn't answer her text. So I was just a wreck because I didn't understand it. I was trying to like fix her and why can't she get better? And I was such a wreck. So I finally went to Al-Anon meeting, which is, you know, a group for, you know, loved ones of alcoholics. And what they said in that meeting, what they said, the phrase detach with love. And the minute they said it, I was like, oh, that's what I need to do. And it made immediate sense to me. And it's basically that you, you can create a boundary with love. Right. And so for my sister, instead of like obsessing over why she wasn't calling me or trying to say like, why are you drinking and you're just sober? I would just say, Hey, I love you. And I'm going to get off the phone, but I want you to call me, you know, when you're sober and I, and I love you. And that's what I would do for a long time. And it just helped me take care of myself because you can really um, lose yourself in someone else when you love them like that. You can, your mental health can kind of go into the trash can. Like it just really wears on you. So it's a way to allow yourself to take care of yourself without feeling guilty, right? Cause you're, you love them, but you just, you cannot save them. So you got to take care of your own health. And so that's what detached with love is. And it, and it very much helped me. I thought it was profound when I was reading it. Yeah. I thought, helpful. God bless you for putting that in because it made so much sense. All right, let's change directions for a couple of minutes. Let's go back to what is a Pulitzer Center (laughs) grantee? That Pulitzer I know is writing and I know it's like top award for a writer. So tell us about that. So yeah, so the Pulitzer Awards are, you know, the, the, you know, if you're not gonna get a Nobel Peace Prize or something, like if you're a writer, the Pulitzers are, are the, the top. I have not gotten an award, <laughs> but being a grantee is when they, so I wrote an article a year ago and this was for Teen Vogue. And so you apply for a grant um, and if they want to sponsor it. So basically they financially sponsor it, they support it. So the article I wrote um, was about a woman in Texas. And so they supported that article and, you know, I've spoken at conferences about it and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a very big honor and it's, um, you know, just to be associated with them and and to have their support is is a big deal. So it was pretty cool. What do you mean they pay, they financially supported you? So they paid the magazine to have your article published? So the Teen Vogue was going to pay me and then when we applied for it the Pulitzer Center came along and funded like my travel and you know things like that. So they it was like a collaboration between the two of them. I see. All right. I always think of Marvin Hamlish, one of my favorite composers, yeah. and he won a Pulitzer for Chorus Line, which I had never heard of before. I didn't know that that was a thing, yeah. that you could win it for yeah. music, mm-hmm. I guess for the play, yeah. for the words in the in the songs. Yeah. But yeah, interesting. Okay, let's let's dish a little here. <laughs> Being a ghostwriter for celebrities gives the illusion of glamour and glitz, <laughs> private party invitations, and even walks down your cherished red carpet. Yes. What's a ghostwriter? What do they do? And what's it really like to be a ghostwriter? And tell us who you can, uh, you know, who are the celebrities for whom you've, you've written and with whom you've worked? And tell us what that's all about. So the ghostwriting came about, um, my book agent said to me a couple of years ago, do you want to, you know, she's like, there's a bunch of celebrities at this agency and they need help. You know, they need co-writers. Do you want to do it? And I was like, I guess I'll try. I had no idea. Um, And basically you help a celebrity or a well-known personality who, who are not writers by trade, you help them write their book. And I think each, each process is a little bit different. Like some people want to write a little bit. Some people don't want to write. 
but you help them tell their story. They don't, they don't know how to write a book. They don't know how to write an essay. It's very intimidating to them. They don't have time. So basically I kind of handhold them through the process and then I help them. Sometimes we'll start with a proposal, which is, um, you know, 50 or so pages that the agent's going to send to try and sell. Sometimes they already have a book deal, but I help them like from the very initial stages when there's no title, there's nothing and try to find out, okay, what are the stories you want to tell? What's your book really about? To the nuts and bolts of like, okay, let's get this on the page um, all the way through publication. And so I've been doing it. When did I first do it? Probably 2017 was my first. And so I, I do about two to three a year. I like to hopefully have like two to three a year. Um, and it's not, I mean, I've gone to a couple parties, but it's mostly not, <laughs> mostly not the glamour. Um, it's mostly a lot of work and a lot of like, you know, these celebrities are so busy. It's my, a big part of the job is kind of chasing them down. Um, but I've written for um, Chriselle Staus, who's on the show Selling Sunset. Um, she started off in soaps and she's a doll and Shep Rose, who's on, the, he's, is on the show Southern Charm. Um, who else can I say? Vanessa Lachey, who's a well-known, you know, she's an actress. She's a co-host. Um, she married to Nick Lachey and, um, a comedian called Laura, Laura Clary. And then there's a couple that I can't say. So, <laughs> so I'm working on three right now. So those I can't say. So does your journalism background come in to play? I would think not yeah. only from your writing skills, but just interviewing them about what you want to put in the book. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's a lot of interviewing. It's a lot of finding the right questions to ask and pushing them when you need to push them, but being gentle. And, and it's like kind of like being a psychologist sometimes too, because sometimes it gets emotional. Like they're telling you some pretty private things, whether they're going to put it in the book or not. So, but yes, very much the journalism, you know, interviewing people and, and, figuring out like, okay, what is going to be the good, what's a good story? What's not a good story? That kind of thing. Do you do the editing too, or does that oh, go to somebody else? Goodness. I'll do like pre, you know, before we send it to the, there's an editor at each publishing house assigned to each book. And so I'll try to, you know, do as much, you know, pre-editing to clean it up and make it good. But they, they edit, we rewrite, they edit, you know, thank you. Gotcha. <laughs> Interesting. Well, do you stay in touch with them after you're done? Is it kind of that kind of a relationship? I mean, if you've been that close with them yep. about them telling you life stories. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I still text with them. Um, pretty much all every person I've worked with. Um, and I've been very lucky, actually. Um, so, yeah, we'll still text. And, you know, one of them still sends me. My son loves it because every year we get this giant um, gingerbread like house during Christmas time. And so my son is just like, you know, she's his favorite. So. But yes, we Aww. stay in touch and, and send little messages and stuff. So you just need to drop a little hint with all these celebrities that <laughs> one day you too would like to walk the red carpet with yeah, them. That would be or, very fun. Or if they could get you because they have seat mm -hmm. fillers. Yes during the commercials and stuff, you know, like if a celebrity has to get up and use the restroom, they have seat fillers that will sit in the seat while they're gone. I had a girlfriend that used to do that at the Oscars every oh, year. And you get all dressed up and you're there with all the celebrities and then they're in the back. And if the celebrity gets up, just so that it looks like it's a full audience on camera. I would have loved to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you might be able to get yourself invited on that. Okay. I always find when I research a topic that I learn so much more than I had originally anticipated. Mm -hmm. And what are the, say the top three things that you've learned about grief, not only about grief, but also in combining humor mm -hmm. and other methodologies to help a person grieve? What are the things that you, that surprised you hmm. in this process? One thing that surprised me during the writing of it was I always knew I wanted to write an honest book about grief. Um, but it surprised me that I had this constant like voice in my head or whatever it was to, that kept telling me like, you have to be as honest and raw as possible. And that surprised me. I didn't, I thought I was going to do more like the humor, like levity side and that's in the book, but it, it did surprise me that I just, I felt very compelled to be very honest. And I think people appreciate that you know, and, and it surprised me how much people do. It scared me because I thought, well, is, is it going to be too much? Are people not going to like the book? And it, and it surprises me that people actually really respond to that kind of rawness about grief and that people want to talk about it. Um, so I think that's one. 
And I think with the humor, um, you know, I don't think it was surprising that it helps, but I think the amount of humor that, that was able to bubble up as I was writing it, because it wasn't an intentional, I wasn't like, okay, I need to insert a joke here. You know, it wasn't like writing a sitcom. It, it just was very organic. So I think it was surprising to me, like when those moments of levity would bubble up, because sometimes I didn't even know they were coming and I would just be typing away and I'm like, oh, that, you know, the little funny thing came out and I don't know why. Um, and then a third thing that's surprising. Hmm. I think one of the, you know, is that the relationship continues. I think that was a surprise to me that I sort of learned through, you know, talking to other people and, 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 and learning about this myself is just that those relationships actually continue. Wonderful. How can people find out more about you and your work? Um, I'm online. So my website's dinagashmanwrites.com. And then I'm on Twitter at dgashman and Instagram or Twitter. I think I'm Dina Gashman and Instagram dgashman. So if you just put my name in the website, will pop up and my articles are all on there and all that good stuff. Yeah. And if anybody wants to hire you for a speaking gig, <laughs> she's your girl. There you go. Combine humor and grief. Yes to help people recover when they lose a loved one. Yes. Thank you for taking the time Thank to you. join us this week. I, I really enjoyed the book and I encourage everybody to go get it. So sorry for your loss. And I got to tell you one quick story about casseroles. I have this joke with my husband who's 10 years older than I am. I would say, if I get hit by a bus, you're going to have women <laughs> lined up around the block, casserole in hand. Yep. And and he'll say something to me and I'll say, no, your new wife, Miss Cassie, can do that, but I'm not doing that. And so we have this running joke. So when I saw the cover of your book in Southern Living, I thought, oh, I got to get this book because it's got a casserole on it. Okay. I don't make casseroles. I love them. Yeah. But I don't ever make them. Yeah. And uh, and so I it just I think the cover is just priceless. Thank you. Well, I, the only thing I really contributed is the first the first version of it. There was no nail polish on the nails, and I was um, like, I'm a Texas girl. You have to put some polish on those nails. So that was my contribution, <laughs> which is I think well, not one. Not only that, but chicken salad chick the. You know, chicken salad place. Do you have those in Texas? No. It's a chain. Maybe it's the Southeast. <laughs> Anyways, it's Southern Bell chicken salad. They got like 15 different kinds yeah. of chicken salad. It's great. It's a serious chick restaurant. Yeah. But my husband loves it too because they have other kinds of stuff that you can get. Anyways, on the walls, they have all these sayings, Southern sayings. And like your mom was saying, don't go out with chip nails. It made me think of it. And one of my favorite sayings is, some things are just not to be discussed, like mayonnaise and money. <laughs> you know, sugar, don't you think a little lipstick is going to make you look better and feel better before you leave and Sounds stuff like that? Weird to me. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. So, all right. Everybody's sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama and Texas, too, where Dina is. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.